Okay, welcome to Progressive News Network here on Blog Talk Radio. My name is Janine Moloff. I am the host and producer. Um, last week, we kind of experimented. We've been having problems with the audio here on Blog Talk Radio. So I'm back to using my phone, which isn't the best, but again, I promise you, we will be looking for a better platform very soon. Okay, so let's look at this. Now, last week we ended the show and I was talking about how we were going to, you know, delve further into additional cases coming for the Supreme Court and in other courts as well, state level courts, um, regarding the uh, First Amendment censorship, uh, like for instance in the Idaho law, which provides, really criminalizes free speech if you mention uh, abortion or the science of abortion or anything like that, um, especially if you're paid by the state, like in this instance, a teacher or a professor. And it isn't merely about abortion or reproductive rights. It's also about not just censoring and canceling out, if you will, what the First Amendment protects, but it actually is about criminalizing speech that religious conservatives don't approve of. And there's nothing constitutional about that. So today, we're changing it up a little bit. Uh, if you saw the advert on Facebook, then what you saw was, uh, you know, the headline, Trumpiest Court Cancels Part of First Amendment. It's not hyperbole. All right. In fact, I got that idea that this is the Trumpiest court in America from a couple of articles written by legal scholar Ian Milheiser. So I'm going to be talking about two, they can only be called garbage rulings, coming out of what has been called, again, according to Milheiser, quote, the Trumpiest court in America, which is the Fifth Circuit Federal Court. Now, this court is manned by judges appointed, not just several of them by Trump, but also by George W. Bush. And these ultra-conservative, I don't even think calling them conservative is legitimate. I'm going to call them what they are, these extreme religious radicals that despise democracy coming out of the Fifth Circuit. They have system, systematically attacked both free speech rights and the right to assemble, providing that you're on the left and, or you're not white enough. Now, the Fifth Circuit has also attacked the right to be, quote, secure in our homes with the most recent ruling on police abuse during an attempted arrest. Now, apparently, according to this story, if the police enter your home during what they call hot pursuit of a suspect, even though you are not harboring that suspect, they can get away with destroying your home and never have to pay you any damages or other forms of restitution. Not kidding. So that's story number one, the one about the cops. Story number two deals with the decision stating that protest leaders can and will be held civilly liable for the violent acts committed by others, even if the perpetrators are on the other side. Now, the implications for what should be constitutionally protected protests and other forms of peaceful dissent are, are truly great. Um, we will also have some musical styling parodies uh, this week it is from Randy Rainbow, and we will have our Jackass of the Week Award. So, here's hoping the audio holds up. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> My voice holds up. With no further ado, let's get to story number one. Okay? So, um, story number one. This 
piece is actually from a website called Above the Law now, or rather AboveTheLaw.com, and it is a website written by lawyers and judges, generally for people in the legal profession, but you can also read it as well. And this is from AboveTheLaw.com, and the headline is, quote, Fifth Circuit, the government doesn't need to pay you for the home it destroyed to effect an arrest. Okay, now, this was in AboveTheLaw.com, but and it was written by TechDirt, that's what it says. And this was published just a few days ago, October 20th. So if you've watched any, like, police shows, as most people have, whether it's Law & Order, you know, whatever, you know, you hear these phrases bandied about a lot, you know, uh, minimal intrusion, you know, hot pursuit of a, of a suspect, and this one in particular, quote, by any means necessary, okay? And here's the problem with those TV shows. While they do it for dramatic effect, they also uh, not just sensationalize, but they kind of make airsats heroes out of police officers that frankly don't deserve it. I'm just going to say it. So this article starts with the quote, by any means necessary. And I'm just going to, you know, read this. Quote, by any means necessary, has been determined to be the same thing as minimal intrusion by far too many courts. When cops are searching for suspects, they're pretty much free to destroy anything that stands between them and their wanted man, even if it means a wholly innocent house gets leveled in the process. It's one thing when cops are seeking a fugitive or suspect at a place where they actually reside. It's a bit different when cops pursue a suspect who then seeks refuge in a home owned by somebody, by someone else, someone who clearly has no desire to harbor a fugitive. You'd think that would factor into the forced equation, but it never does. What happens is this. The inanimate objects that make a house a home, doors, walls, windows, roofs, are treated as obstructors of justice, something to be subdued or eradicated. Battering rams, flashbangs, assault vehicles, shotgun shells are all deployed to ensure the house cannot continue to harbor a fugitive. And sure, that might mean something if it was a fugitive's home. At that point, the responsibility mostly lies with the criminal suspect. But when it's an innocent homeowner and an innocent homeowner caught in the crossfire, the calculation somehow doesn't change. Okay, so end quote. So that's the first paragraph or so of this story. So what happened here? There is this woman named Vicki Baker. She lives in Texas. Are you shocked it's coming from Texas, or as I call it, Texas? Anyway, um, Vicki Baker lives in a town called McKinney, Texas, and her home was destroyed. Now, there's a little background that I have to give you first, all right? In 2018, Baker, Vicki Baker had a handyman named Wesley Little, and she fired him. She didn't hear anything more from him. Then July of 2020, Wesley Little was in trouble, and he returned to Vicki Baker's house to hide out. He was wanted by law enforcement and uh, apparently for the abduction of a 15-year-old girl. So, Baker's daughter was home. She answered the door when Wesley rang the bell. Apparently this guy, you know, had enough manners to at least ring the bell, right? And then the kid was smart enough 
to leave the house, okay, and call the police, all right? And she did that because she had seen some earlier news reports that identified, um, you know, Wesley as a kidnapping suspect. Now, this, according to the article, quote, this good deed did not go unpunished, okay? Um, oh, give me a second. I'm, I'm looking at the wrong thing here. I'm sorry. So here's what happened. According to court documents, and I think this is court documents, let me see. <coughs> no, this is, um, I'm sorry, I want to make sure that they've got the documentation. Okay, so according to these reports, quote, SWAT agents soon arrived, end quote. All right, so it makes sense. SWAT team came. This guy was accused of kidnapping a child. All right. <coughs> Excuse me. So here's what happened. Quote, SWAT agents soon arrived. They set off explosives to open the garage entryway, detonated tear gas grenades inside the, bil- inside the building, ran over Baker's fence with an armored vehicle, and ripped off her front door despite being given a garage door opener, a code to the back gate, and a key to the home. I have to read that one again because this, apparently the police in McKinney, Texas, really are either that violent or that stupid or both. So listen again. Wesley Little, he's on the run. Uh, He... He's wanted by law enforcement for abducting a 15-year-old kid. He goes back to Vicki Baker's house. And, again, Vicki Baker, you know, the lady he used to do handyman work for. Baker's daughter saw him, recognized him from news reports that he was, you know, wanted for serious crimes. Um, she answered the door, and then she left the premises, okay? And she called the police. And then the police arrived, and here's what happened. I'm going to read this statement again. Let it sink in. Quote, SWAT agents soon arrived. They set off explosives to open the garage entryway, detonated tear gas grenades inside the building, ran over Baker's fence with an armored vehicle, and ripped off her front door, despite being given a garage door opener, a code to the back gate, and a key to the home. End quote. And the quote goes on to say, quote, the house was unlivable when they were through, end quote. They were given a key. They were given a garage door opener. Why did they need to do all this? So, predictably, Vicki Baker sued. And I don't blame her. I would have done the same thing. Um, you know, besides the fact that her daughter gave cops information about the location of the kidnapping suspect, okay, Baker herself gave officers several options you know, to get into the home and, you know, collect their suspect without destroying her home. And according to the article, quote, the officers used none of the nonviolent options and chose to decimate Baker's home to apprehend the suspect, end quote. Okay, um, this is outrageous. So the district court, okay, and this is according to techdirt.com, the district court and apparently this article was written by Texter, okay? Oh, I lost my place. Sorry, folks. Um, oh, there it is. The district court, according to Texter, um, said that 
the actions of the police did not allow the city, you know, an out from Baker's lawsuit, okay? So I'm going to read this, you know, and basically they said, even though the damage was, quote, the court called it inadvertent, that inadvertent, what they called inadvertent damage is one thing, but to deliberately cause damage when there were other ways that were provided to, you know, collect your suspect, that's, and they chose to be destructive anyway, that's something else. And so the district court let Baker's lawsuit continue, okay? Now, according to the, um, well, the, the district court, they wrote in their, their um, decisions, the district court wrote the following, quote, Baker has sufficiently pleaded a takings claim under the Texas Constitution. The actions taken by the department officers damaged Baker's home. That much appears undisputed. Even if the government did not intend to damage Baker's property to apprehend Little, the city was substantially certain such damage would result. It is unreasonable for the city to suggest the department officers stormed Baker's house, broke the windows, knocked down the garage door, rammed down the backyard fence with a tank-like vehicle and fired dozens of explosive tear gas canisters into the home without a degree of certainty that such actions would, I'm sorry, yeah, would cause damage to the property. As such, and after considering the pleadings and case law cited above, the court finds Baker has sufficiently pleaded a violation of Article 1, Section 17 of the Texas Constitution as to survive a Rule 12b6 motion to dismiss. Okay, all right, so the district court said these cops, they chose to be more destructive than they needed to be, the city's at fault. City appealed, okay. This is where the Fifth Circuit, the federal court, the Fifth Circuit came in. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is the Fifth Circuit federal court is considered, quote, the cop-friendliest appellate district in the nation. The introduction to, you know, the Fifth Circuit's decision, and this is from documentcloud.org, is the following, quote, we conclude that as a matter of history and precedent, the takings clause does not, re does not require compensation for damaged or destroyed property when it was objectively necessary for officers to damage or destroy that property in an act of emergency to prevent imminent harm to persons. Baker has maintained the officer's actions were precisely that, necessary in light of an active emergency to prevent imminent harm to the hostage child, to the officers who responded on the scene, and to others in a residential community. Accordingly, and despite our sympathy for Ms. Baker, on whom misfortune fell at no fault of wrong, we reversed. So the Fifth Circuit reversed the district court's findings. <coughs> now, it is bad enough that the Fifth Circuit said the cop's insane uh, destruction of her home doesn't require compensation for that destruction. But Tector pointed out something else that escapes a lot of non-lawyers. The first sentence, we conclude that as a matter of history and precedent, the takings of the, the takings clause. That first sentence is saying that this ruling is both, quote, historical and precedential, end quote. Okay? I'm just going to read this paragraph. Quote, 
This means that this circuit has created a rule that explicitly allows police officers to destroy personal property so long as they can claim there was a law enforcement reason to do so, end quote. I'm going to read that one again. Okay, I'm get a little drink of water here. Okay. That first sentence of the Fifth Circuit's introduction to their decision. Quote, note that first sentence. This is both historical and precedential. This means the Fifth Circuit has created a rule that explicitly allows police officers to destroy personal property so long as they can claim there was a law enforcement reason to do so. It goes on to say future litigants in Baker's unfortunate decision will find themselves in an even more disadvantageous position thanks to this ruling, end quote. The Fifth Circuit handed down this decision, and they're essentially, you know, conservatives love to talk about how they are originalists, and they, a judge's job is not to create new law through ruling, but that's exactly what the Fifth Circuit did on this one. They create a new law which basically says if the cops are in hot pursuit, and they don't really have to prove it, they could just say it, um, they can destroy your home, get away with it, and the city or department never has to pay you for the damage. I understand if in hot pursuit sometimes these things happen, but there never should be an out clause for cities because, again, they still damage somebody else's property. They should be forced to pay. And for the record, a lot of people don't realize just about every township, small town, city in the United States carries malpractice insurance to cover this type of stuff. Now, people don't know that. But again, the insurance companies don't want to pay either. Now, the Tector author of this also explained that the reasoning of the Fifth Circuit on this decision is flawed. It starts with the cop's own justification. Okay? So let me go back to my... I lost my place here. Sorry, folks. Okay. By the time, according to the article, by the time the cops had surrounded the house, there really wasn't any possibility of, quote, imminent harm to the hostage child. This wasn't. Because after the cops came, the suspect released the girl and she left the house. So the hostage was safe now. Let me repeat that again. After the cops surrounded the house, Wesley Little, the suspect, the, you know, the kidnapper, released the kid. And she left the house. So the child is no longer in danger. There is no possibility of, quote, imminent harm to the hostage child. There isn't. All they have now is a fugitive. Now, the 15-year-old did tell the cops that Little had access to long guns, and she said he was, quote, obviously high on methamphetamine. Okay. Now, this is according to what the cops say. The article saying it's unlikely that this kid said that, you know, I don't really know. But whatever was said, according to the article, quote, the cops chose their plan of action. And that plan involved destroying the house despite being given access 
and an open invitation to enter the house through a variety of entrances, end quote. Keep in mind, they had, they had the garage door opener, they had the code to the gate, and they had the keys to the house. Why did they need to do all this? They didn't. So there were gaps in the cop's uh, testimony as well. Uh, according to this article, once again, quote, little somehow, that was the suspect, little somehow communicated to police that he had terminal cancer, wasn't going back to prison, knew he was going to die, and was going to shoot it out with the police, end quote. Police proceeded to use explosive devices, the Bearcat, a T-Rex similar to the Bearcat, toxic gas grenades, and a drone to try to resolve the situation. After some time, the drone was able to reach a vantage point to see that Little had taken his own life, end quote. Okay? That's you know, right there. Drives me batty, okay? Um, and that's, you know, test, court testimony right there. So he was already dead. Um Again, this article goes on to say there isn't hardly anything in the court record that supports the decision made by the Fifth Circuit that all this destruction was, quote, necessary to resolve the situation, end quote. Okay. The minute the suspect committed suicide, the situation is resolved. Why do you need to kill the house? That's crazy. So... There's more to this story, okay? Uh, there, this violent raid that was totally unnecessary, there were some other side effects. Quote, the explosions, you know, the grenades that the cops used, quote, the explosions left Baker's dog permanently blind and deaf. The toxic gas that permeated the house required the services of a hazmat remediation team. Appliances and fabrics were irreparable. Ceiling fans, plumbing, floors, hard surfaces as well as carpets, and bricks needed to be replaced in addition to the windows, blinds, fence, front door, and garage door. Essentially, all of, your, of the personal property in the house was destroyed, including an antique doll collection left to Baker by her mother. In total, the damage was approximately $50,000, end quote. So the judges did sort of go, too bad, so sad. Instead, they lean on this history and historical precedent thing regarding the takings clause. And this is where this, this individual case proves to be so incredibly dangerous because this could set the stage for further legalization of a police state. All right. I know if cops invaded my home because they thought somebody had invaded my house and they destroyed it, yes, I would sue. I would sue the city, but I'd sue individual cops as well, and it would be all over the media, all right? I wouldn't let it go, because I know that the court, these conservative judges, don't even get me started. Okay, so the Fifth Circuit goes, too bad, so sad. Let's look at the true danger of this case beyond that. This is a get-out-of-jail-free card and get-out-of-any-civil-liability-free card for police departments to destroy people's homes. Just this. Okay? 
and the history and precedent. Precedent is what our entire legal system is, of course, is based on. Right? When you hear on TV and they say, well, in, you know, Brandenburg v. Ohio, they're citing precedent. All of the court leanings are based on what was decided and, you know, previously, what preceded. And so the Fifth Circuit is writing new law and saying, this is our precedent now. And that's pretty damn outrageous. So, and the takings clause, again, in the Constitution, that's saying the government can't take your property except in a dire necessity. So, going back to this, this article here, uh, the, it goes here, quote, in some history, tradition, and historical precedent reaching back to the founding supports the existence of a necessity exempt exception to the takings clause. Today we make no attempt to define the bounds of this exception. We hold only in this case, okay, so this is from the Fifth Circuit. Let me back up here. I made a mistake. All right. So the Fifth Circuit is saying, too bad, so sad. And this is what these judges wrote. All right. The Fifth Circuit wrote, quote, in some history, tradition, and by some mean the sum total. Quote, in some history, tradition, and historical precedent reaching back to the founding supports the existence of the necessity exception to the takings clause. Today we make no attempt to define the bounds of this exception. We hold only that in this case, the takings clause where the government takes your property one way or another, the takings clause does not require compensation for Baker's damaged or destroyed property because, as Baker herself claimed, it was objectively necessary for officers to damage or destroy her property in an active emergency to prevent imminent harm to persons. We need not determine whether the necessity exception extends further than this. End quote. That's what they wrote. And Tector explained it. They say, quote, in other words, if you agree to be governed, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, you is your home. Um, basically, this article is explaining that, quote, you can simultaneously agree cops needed to perform some destruction to arrest a criminal um, without ceding that they can engage in as much destruction as possible when affecting arrest. And if the government wants to tax you for the services rendered, it can. Um, but the article goes on to explain that government should also be willing to help you clean up the mess they created. But that's not going to happen here because the Fifth Circuit said we don't have to. Okay? You know, again, the takings clause has been interpreted to read, quote, that no individual should be forced to bear the cost of government actions that should be borne by all. Okay? Which makes sense. But apparently, according to the Fifth Circuit, it doesn't matter. According to the Fifth Circuit, the homeowner in this instance, Vicki Baker, is screwed. But the true danger here is the fact the Fifth Circuit has said, this is precedent now. We're making new law. And that's a baseline um, the Fifth Circuit set now. And according to the article, quote, that's the baseline affirmed and established by the Fifth Circuit in this decision, which means cops in the Fifth Circuit won't be dissuaded from engaging in needless destruction of personal property for the foreseeable future, end quote. So 
I wouldn't just say there. I'd say all over the country. Okay, police departments are looking at this decision that came out of the Fifth Federal Circuit. And I guarantee you, they're telling their cops, you know what? Play with your choice of destruction. There was no need to use all the weaponry they used on Vicki Baker's home. None. But what I've noticed is that these cops have militarized weapons, and they, they're they so hyped up, they want to use them. I mean, in my opinion, there are too many psychopaths that are cops. I'm just going to say it. And what they did to this woman's house is, is vile. Okay? So, again, this is a really important decision because it's saying the new precedent as established by the Fifth Circuit judges very simply is going to be that cops can come in if they are, you know, basically in hot pursuit. They can destroy your home. They'll claim it, they can, as long as they claim that it was necessary and boom, get away with it and you won't get any sort of reparation. None. None. Make no mistake about it. This is kind of what our military did in Fallujah, now it's come back to us. So we're going to have a little sound effects before we move to our second story. number two. Again, the Fifth Circuit. Now, this story is a little older. This story, this is a story written by Ian Milheiser, actually, and it was published June 21st, 2023, this past summer. And this is the attack on the First Amendment. So this one's going to take a little longer. Um, again, notice this is coming out of the Fifth Circuit. So those of you that are you know, hesitant to vote because you think, well, if it's between Biden and Trump, what difference does it make? Well, it makes a lot of difference in terms of who becomes federal judges. It isn't all just the Supreme Court. And we've seen the damage that judges of the Fifth Circuit have done, especially Trump-appointed judges. So those of you, especially young people that don't want to vote, I'm going to tell you right now, get off your asses and vote, period. Stop having a little hissy fit. You may not like Joe Biden. I'm not crazy about Joe Biden. I wanted Bernie both times. That being said, though, these Trump-appointed judges and the judges appointed by George W. are vile, and that matters because it's presidents that make the appointments. Grow up, Junior. If that sounds like I'm being condescending, well, you interpret it correctly. I am being condescending. Because I have no patience for young people that refuse to vote. Y'all will vote on every little contest on Instagram or whatever, but you won't get off your asses to vote in elections that really matter. 
Then you go out and you protest. And I know I've been to several protests. And this second article really affects me as well because I've even organized one or two protests. It's not just about showing up and being loud. It's about also taking your responsibility as a citizen to get vote for people you may not like as much to prevent people like Trump to get back in office. Grow up, Junior. All right, let's go on to our next story. This ran in Vox. I like Vox, V-O-X, Vox.com. They really explain the issues of the day quite well. I publish on Nation of Change and your Razor Review and Op-Ed News right now, but I wouldn't mind publishing on Vox as well. All right, so here we go. So this is, again, the Fifth Circuit and how they attacked the First Amendment free speech provision. Okay? And this is involved the case uh, of a prominent Black, rights, um, Black Lives Matter leader named DeRay McKesson. I met DeRay McKesson several years ago when this was first happening during the Tea Party and all that. And they try and paint him as this scary guy. DeRay McKesson is not only short, but I, I doubt if he weighs 120 pounds sopping wet. All right? I mean, I don't have to agree with everything he does, but part of me just wanted to sit him down and feed him, but he's probably just naturally thin. He physically can't intimidate anybody. It's so absurd. But he makes some excellent points. So let's go on with this. This is an article written by Ian Milheiser. He Milheiser is a senior correspondent at Vox. Uh, his focus includes the Supreme Court, the Constitution, and what he calls the, quote, decline of liberal democracy in the United States. Milheiser um, is a practicing attorney. He received his legal degree, his JD from Duke University, and he's authored two books on the Supreme Court. So headline for this piece is the Fifth Circuit comes for the First Amendment right to protest. And the subtitle is a rogue federal court has spent years harassing a prominent civil rights advocate. Okay? So let's move on. So this, for over four years, this federal appeals court, namely the fifth, um, has, according to Millheiser, quote, given life to a highly dubious lawsuit tar targeting D. Ray McKesson. Now, McKesson, as I said a minute ago, is a prominent figure in the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, those of you that don't, don't like Black Lives Matter, well, you're old, maybe older, but you need to grow up too because when you think of the slogan, Black Lives Matter, I don't want to hear all lives matter or white lives matter because guess what? When I hear the, word, the phrase Black Lives Matter, you may as well just put the word too after it. Black Lives Matter too because in this country, for our entire history, black lives have not mattered. Let's be honest. So McKesson, you know, he's with Black Lives Matter, so I'm sure the conservatives in the court really wanted to screw him over. The bias of the court is quite obvious. So again, the Fifth Circuit is the United States Court of Appeals. That means it's a federal court. Um, and their decision, according to Milheiser, quote, would not only strip McKesson of his First Amendment protected right to organize mass protests against police violence, it threatens all Americans' ability to organize any protest, end quote. So, on Friday in June of this past summer, the Fifth Circuit handed down their decision in the case, which is Doe v. McKesson. Okay? Now, this is, according to Milheiser, quote, the case 
at the heart of this crusade against the First Amendment, end quote. And the conservatives are, they are trying to destroy the First Amendment. Now, notice what's happening here. The racism is palpable because they're going after McKesson, but mind you, the, the January 6th insurrectionists, it took quite a while to bring any of them to court. Most of them were never arrested that day at all. I mean, it's ridiculous. But anyway, let me move on. So the Fifth Circuit, their approach is, is really insane. And this decision um, was written by, uh, the, this decision was written by Judge Jennifer Elrod. Okay, I like the fact that McKesson names the judges. I hate when I you know, read articles and they never, they, they name the court, they don't name individual judges. And I believe in holding people accountable. If you don't know their names, you can't hold them accountable. Okay. All right, so Judge Jennifer Elrod came up with some really insane reasoning behind this, but here's what she did. And the court went along with it. Um, I lost my place, sorry. I'm going to read straight from this here, okay? Let me start over because Milheiser puts it away far better than I could. Okay. The United, I'll read this again. Quote, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit's decisions would not only strip McKesson of his First Amendment protected right to organize mass protests against police violence, it threatens all Americans' ability to organize any protest. On Friday... That was back in June. The Fifth Circuit handed down its latest decision in Doe v. McKesson, a case at the heart of this crusade against the First Amendment. Quote, under the Fifth Circuit's latest approach, a protest organizer who commits even a minor legal violation, in this case the court falls to McKesson, for leading a protest, quote, in front of the Baton Rouge police station for, quote, attempting to block a public highway, may potentially be held liable for the illegal actions of someone else who attended the protest. So in other words, this Judge Jennifer Elrod fashioned a decision that basically says that if you're a leader of a protest, and let's say you've implored everybody, here are the rules, nonviolence, you know, don't, don't engage violently and so on, it doesn't matter if the opposition shows up. If they do something illegal, even minor, like jaywalking, guess what? The leader of the protest could be held liable for the illegal actions of someone else who is in attendance. Now, that's insane. I thought we were adults. You're responsible for your own actions, not someone else's. But And it's not about incitement either. That's the crazy part. So let's get some history about this case. So 2016, Ray McKesson uh, helped organize and lead a protest, um, you know, right near the Baton Rogue, the Baton Rogue, Pol- Baton Rogue, yeah, Baton Rogue Police Department building. Okay. Now this was, uh, excuse me, this was right after the the fatal um, the police murder of Alton Sterling. Okay, you know, once again, another black man murdered by police. So McKesson leads a protest. During the protest, somebody, they don't know who, some other individual threw a rock or something else 
at the plaintiff. Now, the plaintiff in this in this case is a police officer, but you know you don't know his name. It's just Officer John Doe. Now, my question is this: How legitimate is that when the person being accused isn't allowed to face their accuser? How do you even know Officer John Doe and all these accusations are even real? That's asinine. Now, according to this, the officer was allegedly struck in the face, and one court document said he experienced, quote, injuries to his teeth, jaw, brain, and head, along with other compensable losses. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) End quote. Again, what about Mr. McKesson's right to face his accuser? How do you know that these injuries really occurred if you don't even, if they don't identify who Officer John Doe is? I I think that's outrageous. So, and and it's obvious too, whoever, let's say John Doe, Officer John Doe is real. The person who should be held liable is the person who actually threw the object. Not DeRay McKesson, who was probably, you know, a couple hundred feet away. But Judge Jennifer Elrod of the Fifth Circuit, she's the author of this opinion. And she even admitted that, quote, it is clear that McKesson did not throw the heavy object that injured the, that injured Doe. And according to Milheiser, that should be the end of the case. And it should. The judge is admitting that Ray McKesson didn't throw the object that caused the, this alleged cop's alleged injury. And I'm saying alleged because, again, we don't know who this cop is. We don't know if this cop really exists. You know, why are you giving him a fake name? Then Milheiser points out the fact the First Amendment provides what he calls robust safeguards uh, against holding any leader of a protest responsible for the actions of somebody else in the protest. But again, not only did Judge Jennifer Elrod disregard the protections of the First Amendment, she created this theory that has no constitutional legitimacy, and frankly, in my opinion, no legitimacy in terms of actual justice. Instead, according to Milheiser, quote, Elrod devises a tortured legal theory that effectively allows Doe to sue McKesson for the actions of the unknown assailant, and, end quote. And then Milheiser goes on to say, quote, in doing so, Elrod flagrantly disobeys at least two landmark Supreme Court decisions, end quote. Now, the two Supreme Court decisions that Elrod crapped on were, one, the NAACP versus Claiborne Hardware, and that was handed down in 1982, and then the landmark decision of Brandenburg v. Ohio, which was handed down in 1969. So we're going to talk about the first one in particular, NAACP v. Claiborne Hardware. And Elrod's opinion really, according to Milheiser, explicitly, he writes, Elrod's opinion explicitly defies the Supreme Court's decision in NAACP v. Claiborne Hardware, which held that barring unusual circumstances that are not present in the McKesson case, quote, civil liability may not be imposed merely because an individual belonged to a group, some members of which committed acts of violence, end quote. Now, Milheiser as a habit when he writes, he kind of goes all over the place. It's not the best teachable thing, but this is what I'm stuck with. Um, Milheiser goes on to say her opinion also uh, flies in the face of Brandenburg v. Ohio, 
1969, quote, which placed strict limits on the law's power to sanction anyone whose speech might encourage others to engage in illegal activity. Okay? So, it's one of the reasons that Donald Trump hasn't been arrested yet for criminal incitement. Actually, what Trump's done to criminally incite has, it really isn't under Bratton Brandenburg, but that's what his lawyer's going to claim. Now, Milheiser um, has this one phrase that I think is perfect for this case. Milheiser wrote, wrote, quote, the three words that must always be protected if free speech is to survive are, fuck the police, end quote. I agree with him. Okay. I mean, it's hard enough to be in a protest, a peaceful protest, where the cops are in body armor. They've got these big shields. Um, they have, you know, armored headdress, and they're marching in form, and they're kettling us. I mean, I've been in places like that, including here in St. Louis. Luckily, I'm little, so I can actually squeeze somewhere in the, any of the neighborhood. They weren't going to find me. But the point is, um, I've been in those types of things where, you know, all you're doing is using words, and the cops are ready, you know, they're ready to just, you know, go to war, put bluntly. You know, this is an officer friendly with just a billy club. It's not Andy Griffith. These guys are, they look like something straight out of Fallujah. Okay? I make, I kid you not. I've been there many times. And when you see the vacant look in their eyes, it, it, you just know they're psychopaths. They see us as enemies. I'm five foot two. There is nothing I can do to physically intimidate anybody. And I have seen that look of vicious indifference in cops' eyes. Okay, when we weren't doing anything destructive or wrong. We were just speaking our peace and they couldn't stand it. So, according to Milheiser, quote, the stakes in this case, which has already been heard once by the Supreme Court and will most likely need to be heard by them again, if the right to protest is to remain viable or simply enormous. Milheiser goes on to say, quote, if protest organizers can be sanctioned for illegal actions by protest attendees, then no one in their right mind will agree to organize a protest, end quote. And it's true. What protest organizers will have to do is, you know, do the decentralized thing where nobody's a leader. I mean, the kids did that with, uh, what was it, um, you know, with the Wall Street protest. Nobody was a leader, okay? That's what we're going to have to do again. There was one judge on the Fifth Circuit that wrote a dissent, Judge Don Willett, and he, you know, he, Milheiser explained that Willett wrote a dissent that said that, quote, under Elrod's decision, a protest leader could potentially be forced to pay for the unlawful acts of counter-protesters and agitators who are actively opposed to the protest leader's cause. And Milheiser goes on to say, quote, if Elrod is right about the First Amendment, then a white supremacist who wishes to cripple the Black Lives Matter movement needs only show up at one of their protests and start throwing stones. End quote. And it's true. And then Milheiser goes on to say, quote, and this case is particularly important because it concerns the right to protest the police, individuals who are authorized by the government 
to commit violence on behalf of the state, end quote. And this is very true. You know, Milheiser goes on to explain, you know, in my own words, I'll just say it. If our right to protest is viable and meaningful, then it has to include being able to demonstrate against government officials, including the cops. And, you know, Milheiser goes on to say, again, the three words that must always be protected if free speech is to survive are, are fuck the police. And it's true. Okay? But you don't have to look any further than at state capitals or in D.C. Um, if you're a group the politicians or rather the corporations don't like and you're protesting and you're protesting, you know, outside their office, but it's still paid for by the taxpayers, cops are going to lock you up. They just are. That should never be allowed. Uh, so let's look at this a little more. So Milheiser goes on to explain the First Amendment rights of protest leaders. Okay? So let's look at the court's decision in Claiborne. All right? So I'll give you a little history first. Claiborne uh, the Claiborne case was about a boycott of white businesses, white-owned businesses uh, in Mississippi, and it was led by the Mississippi chapter of the NAACP. Now, according to the Mississippi Supreme Court, which at the time, we don't know how truthful they are, some individuals that were in the boycott, quote, engaged in acts of physical force and violence against the persons and property of certain customers and prospective customers, end quote, of these white businesses. Now, the leaders of the boycott in the Claiborne case, according to Milheiser, they did a lot more to encourage uh, violence than McKesson is accused of doing. McKesson didn't do any of this. Now, uh, this, the Claiborne case involves Charles Evers, who was a very important figure in the NAACP at the time. He did give a series of speeches supporting the boycott, and allegedly, Ever said in one of the speeches that, quote, if we catch any of you going in any of them racist stores, we're going to break your damn neck, end quote. I don't know how true it was. But it doesn't matter. The Supreme Court, this is in 1982, the Supreme Court decided in Claiborne that, quote, this emotionally charged rhetoric did not transcend the bounds of protected speech, end quote. It didn't. And the Claiborne decision, in a more broader sense, uh, according to Milheiser, really emphasized the idea that courts must exercise what they call extreme care, and that's the phrase they use, extreme care, before they uh, impose any liability on any political figure. doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. Now, there are some rare cases, according to this decision, where a protest leader could be held liable for someone else's violent actions, but... There are three, one of three circumstances must exist in order to hold that protest leader liable, okay? So these are three separate theories, and um, I'm going to read them. First, quote, first defining that he, in other words, the author, the leader, authorized, directed, or ratified specific tortious activity would justify holding him responsible for the consequences of the, that activity. Two, Quote, a finding that his public speeches were likely to incite lawless action could justify holding him liable for unlawful conduct and in fact followed within a reasonable period. And three, quote, the speeches might be taken as evidence, uh, in, and they were talking about Evers, gave one, gave other specific instructions to carry out violent acts or threats. So, 
According to the Claiborne decision, one of these three circumstances has to be present in the case in order to hold uh, the leader of a protest liable for someone else's violence. And basically, what, number one is, is simply saying that that leader either, quote, authorized, directed, or ratified specific activity, okay, specific violence, in other words. Um, two, maybe the public speeches were just so insightful that you couldn't escape it. Or three, um, the speeches could be taken as evidence that there were other instructions to carry out violent actions or threats. Now, according to Milheiser, quote, none of these circumstances are present in McKesson. Not a one. And Milheiser goes on to explain, <clears throat> quote, there is no allegation that McKesson directed anyone to hurl a rock at a police officer or that he endorsed the attack on Officer Doe after it occurred. Goes on to say, quote, indeed, there is no allegation that McKesson encouraged violence of any kind or even that he engaged in the kind of emotionally charged rhetoric that the Supreme Court held was protected in Claiborne. So it comes nowhere near that standard. Um, and then in, Milheiser points out that there was an earlier opinion in the McKesson case. Um, the Fifth Circuit admitted that Officer Doe, quote, has not pled facts that would allow a jury to conclude that McKesson colluded with the unknown assailant to attack Officer Doe, knew of the attack, and ratified it or agreed with other named persons that attacking the police was one of the goals of the demonstration. Okay. So the Fifth Circuit themselves admitted none of these conditions that are necessary in the Claiborne decision, which is established precedent and accepted precedent, none of that existed in this case against D. Ray McKesson. None. By the Fifth Circuit Court's own admission, and Milheiser explains, quote, that admission is fatal to the Fifth Circuit's argument, end quote. And it is. Okay. Milheiser goes on to explain, quote, El Elrod, in other words, Judge Elrod's opinion doesn't just violate the First Amendment. It openly defies the Supreme Court decision in Claiborne. Um, and it goes on to say that instead of actually obeying the Claiborne decision, this opinion by Judge Elrod in the McKesson case, quote, simply pretends that Claiborne did not say what it actually said. So in other words, just Jennifer Elrod is gaslighting us, saying the Claiborne decision, you know, yeah, it's right there, we read it, we understand it, but it's, it, that's not what you think it is, which is nonsense. Okay? You know, Milheiser points out that Elrod writes, quote, Elrod writes this astonishing sentence, quote, Nothing in Claiborne suggests that the three theories identified above are the only proper basis for imposing tort liability on a protest leader, end quote. Okay, so Judge Elrod has just decided, with no real backup, that this, this big case that has been accepted precedent, that these three theories, um, which are for imposing tort liability, in other words, these three theories aren't the only way that we can decide if we're going to allow a protest leader to be sued. 
okay? She's decided unilaterally that her opinion counts more than established Supreme Court precedent. Again, this does not meet the extreme care uh, requirement before you sanction protest organizers. Um, again, this is about silencing protests. Okay. Milheiser also explains that Judge Elrod's opinion, quote, cites no other court decision that reads Claiborne in such a counterintuitive way. Okay, so if, if Judge Elrod said, okay, this is the only conditions where we can allow a protest leader to be sued civilly. You know, and if she cited, maybe there were some other cases, but you know what, we see uh, something else in these other cases. She cited no other court decision. She basically said, it, it, this is what it is because I say so. That's it. And this is about really trying to dismantle the First Amendment, period. Not just free speech, it's about the right to peaceably assemble, uh, you know, to petition the government for redress of grievances. Okay? And then, according to Milheiser, quote, having given herself the freewheeling authority to invent new exceptions to the First Amendment, Elrod then determines that the First Amendment does not apply, quote, where a defendant creates unreasonably dangerous conditions and where the crea his creation of those conditions causes the plaintiff to sustain injuries, and that's what Elrod said. So what are these unreasonable danger, unreasonably dangerous conditions that DeRay McKesson supposedly created, according to Judge Elrod? So Judge Elrod points to these allegations that McKesson, quote, organized the protest to begin in front of the police station, obstructing access to the building, that he did not dissuade a group of protesters who allegedly stole water bottles from a grocery store and that he led the assembled protest onto a public highway in violation of Louisiana criminal law, end quote. So Judge Elrod's justification for allowing the protest leader to be sued for the violence of somebody else that they had nothing to do with because he violated a traffic law, but for that we can destroy the First Amendment. Because that's what she's doing. So apparently, according to Judge Elrod, she believes it's, quote, unreasonably dangerous, her words, to protest government officials, you know, outside the building where they work, and violate some traffic laws. That's it. Uh, and she also went further. Uh, it says here, quote, elsewhere in her opinion, quote, Elsewhere, in her opinion, Elrod also suggests that McKesson may run afoul of Claiborne's holding that a protest leader may be held liable if their, quote, public speeches were likely to incite lawless action, end quote. But judge, does Judge Elrod have any specific statements that justify what she's saying? No, she didn't point to a single statement. Not a single one that, that McKesson allegedly made which would have incited someone to injure this unknown police officer. In fact, the unknown police officer doesn't either. The dissenting judge, Judge Willett, pointed out that, quote, the lone insightful speech quoted in Doe's complaint is something McKesson said not to a fired-up protester, <coughs> but to a mic'd-up reporter the day after the protest. And what did McKesson say that was so horrible? Quote, the police want protesters to be too afraid to protest, end quote. Okay, so... 
I don't consider that statement to be anywhere near insightful. It's truthful. I mean, you know, Judge Elrod is, you know, she's not only creating law that doesn't exist, she's lying. And she's not just telling lies, she's telling incredibly stupid lies. So, again, why are we surprised? Because the Fifth Circuit, according to Ian Milheiser, has been a rogue court. And they're an embarrassment that this type of ruling is typical. It's dominated by Trump appointees and some other judges on the far right. Um, this is why I was really chewing out young people that refuse to vote because they don't like Joe Biden. You know, they want someone else. Well, here's the thing. The time to push that is during the primary or the caucus, whichever. And that, I believe in a vigorous primary season. I do. But you have to remember, if the president nominates these judges, and if Trump gets back in, we're going to have judges that are far worse than this. So, junior, time to grow up. You know, if you guys can push stereotypes of people my age, then, hey, slap back is fair. Anyway, the Fifth Circuit has been an embarrassment. It is dominated by Trump appointees, and according to Milheiser, in the last few years, they've done several things that were highly objectionable. And I'm just going to read this to you. Quote, <laughs> in the last few years, quote, the Fifth Circuit declared an entire federal agency unconstitutional. That's number one. Two, they stripped another of its authority to enforce federal laws protecting investors from fraud. Three, it permitted Texas Republicans to effectively seize control of content moderation at social media sites like Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. Four, it seized control over much of the United States' diplomatic relations with the nation of Mexico. Five, it effectively tried to ban the drug Mifepristone, a pill used in more than half of all U.S. abortions, which has been legal in the United States for nearly a quarter century. And six, it even tried to put right-wing judges in charge of the military, handing down a decision that, in Justice Brett Kavanaugh's words, inserted the courts into the Navy's chain of command, overriding military commanders' professional military judgments, end quote. That's nutty. Milheiser goes on to say, quote, indeed, the Fifth Circuit's decisions are so often divorced from any recognizable legal principle that it's fairly often reversed from the left by our current very conservative Supreme Court. I, I, end quote. So I love that phrase. Their Fifth decisions are so often divorced from any recognizable legal principle, and they are. Truly problematic. Uh, he goes on to explain that in 2020, the Supreme Court handed down a what they call a brief decision in the McKesson case, and it looked like it was going to make the case go away. But what the Supreme Court did in that brief decision, they didn't rule on whether McKesson's actions were actually protected First Amendment activity. Instead, they kicked it back down to the Louisiana Supreme Court to decide whether McKesson violated any other Louisiana state laws when he organized the, the protest. Um, their rationale, the Supreme Court's rationale was, quote, because if he, in other words, McKesson, did not violate any laws, then there's no reason to determine whether the First Amendment permits him to break the law, end quote. So basically the Supreme Court was really attempting to evade any discussion 
of First Amendment censorship on this one because it's such a judicial embarrassment. So they kicked, they kicked the can down the road to the Louisiana Supreme Court. The Louisiana Supreme Court um, didn't shut the lawsuit down. Instead, they ruled that, quote, it could be found that Mr. McKesson's actions in provoking a confrontation with Baton Rouge police officers through the commission of a crime, the blocking of a heavily traveled highway, thereby posing a hazard to public safety, end quote, violated Louisiana law, end quote. But keep in mind, McKesson isn't being sued for blocking a highway. He's being sued for violence committed against this unknown Officer John Doe by an unknown assailant. Okay, this is just whack. And, you know, Milheiser explains that, quote, Claiborne could not be clearer that the First Amendment does not allow McKesson to be held responsible for this unknown individual's inexcusable act of violence. Okay? Um, the finally, Milheiser concludes with, quote, it is now, in other words, up to the Supreme Court to do what it was unwilling to do in 2020. It must hear the First Amendment dispute at the heart of McKesson. And if the right to protest means anything, it must reverse the Fifth Circuit, end quote. So that's the insanity that's going on here. If this makes your blood boil, it should. It really should. So we're going to have a little... Um, intro, not music, but just a little uh, brief interlude. And we're back. All right. I want to let you guys know that when you look up the show, it says it's two hours. But what I do, since I never know how long it's going to go for sure, I book the full two hours, but we often don't use it. So I don't want people to be afraid to think I don't want to sit still for two hours. It's often usually about an hour and 15 minutes. All right. Now we've got two more things going here. All right. So I think what we're going to do first is we are going to um, we're going to go to the Jackass of the Week Award, okay? And then we will have the musical stylings of Randy Rainbow. Seems, seems appropriate. Okay, so give me a second here first. Welcome to PNN's Jackass of the Week Award. Crayon. This week it's a Jenny. The GOP never sounded more intelligent. Okay. So this week, our Jackass of the Week award is actually a Jenny, and it goes to New York Representative and House, one of the House GOP leaders, Representative Elise Stefanik. Now this occurred during the, I think it was either, the, maybe it was the second nomination to make Jim Jordan that Speaker of the House. And she gave a speech that, oh, my God, it was so embarrassing. Apparently, Elise Stefanik doesn't recall when she mentioned how Jim Jordan supported his athletes on the wrestling mat, forgot all the allegations 
of molestation by the team's doctor that Jim Jordan knew about. Ohio State University paid out millions of dollars. Okay? Uh, apparently, she forgot about all that because, you know, if you're a required, if you're a mandated reporter and athletic coaches are, and you know that abuse or molestation is going on in most states, and Ohio is one of them, if a mandated reporter fails to report suspected abuse or molestation, they are in criminal trouble, okay? And Ohio has one of those laws on the books, and, you know, yes, they're adults, some of them, but you know what, if they're freshmen, some of those freshmen might still be minors, you know? So I'm going to play Miss Stefanik's speech. It speaks for itself in its level of immense jackassery. Give me a second here. Mr. Speaker Pro Temp, Madam Clerk, colleagues, on behalf of the House Republican Conference, I rise today to nominate gentleman from Ohio, Jim Jordan, as Speaker of the People's House. Listen to that nonsense. We are at a time of great crisis no shame. America, a time of historic challenges in this very chamber. You caused it. And a time when heinous acts of terror and evil have been committed against our great ally, Israel. As this body convenes for the sacred responsibility to elect the next speaker of the mm-hmm. People's House, Come on, I baby. am reminded of the Book of Esther. Oh, good for Lord. such a time is this. Jim Jordan will... Okay, I got to stop her there. This lady ain't even a Jew. And she's going to mention Queen Esther. Oh, all right. Here comes the juicy part. ...be America's speaker for such a time as this. A time when hardworking American families are struggling under the vice of inflation, not able to afford groceries, heat, or gas because of the trillions and trillions of dollars of reckless spending by failed far-left governments. Make no mistake about it, a lot of the inflation is caused by the fact that corporations are greedy, little Elise. And let's also mention the fact that the rich don't pay any taxes, okay? But, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe she didn't bounce on her head too much when she was a baby. I don't know. Let's get back to the bullshit coming out of Elise Stefanik's mouth. A time when millions are being illegally trafficked and smuggled across our southern and northern borders due to the catastrophic and inhumane wide-open borders of Joe Biden. Okay, there's the racism card right there for the MAGA minions. Keep going. A time when violent crime is skyrocketing across America. Okay, violent crime. That is a euphemism for black people and brown people moved into the neighborhood. Wow, she hasn't missed a single dog whistle. Woo, you go, girl. Destroying our great cities, suburbs, and small towns where people no longer feel safe in their homes or in their communities. Again, people don't feel safe. Again, black folks moved into the neighborhood, and oh, my goodness, there goes the neighborhood. That's really what she's saying. Okay, the race is, sweetie, little mystified. She may as well just put on her white hood and be done with it, but... I digress. A time when American energy production has been crushed by Joe Biden's radical, failed, far-left policies, causing seniors, farmers, and families to pay more at the pump and struggle with skyrocketing utility bills. Okay, the skyrocketing utility bills are because public service commissions all over the country 
work for the corporations they're supposed to regulate, okay? Again, I need the hip waders right now. This lady is lie on top of lie, but we're going to get to the juicy part in a minute. A time when the federal government is weaponized against we the people who they are supposed to serve. That's saying the January 6th insurrectionists, how dare they be actually sent to court for their crimes? Again, this, ooh, again, we get, just wait for the juicy part about the wrestling. It's just, ooh. Stripping us of our God-given constitutional rights and wrongfully targeting conservatives, Catholics, and even parents at school board meetings. Okay, forget the fact that Joe Biden is a practicing Catholic. Okay, that's number one. And, and, you know, what, people's rights are being violated? Hmm. I I don't know what she's really saying is white folk, white Christian fundamentalists just aren't being allowed to dictate to everybody else as much. Okay, keep going. Again, need the hip waders on this one. I mean, good Lord, the stench in that chamber must be something. And a time when the people of our closest and most precious ally, Israel, suffered the bloodiest day since the Holocaust, with acts of inhumane evil committed by Hamas terrorists backed by Iran, grotesque atrocities, the beheadings of babies, rapes, kidnappings, and slaughter of women, children, and the elderly, and Israelis and Americans taken hostage. Okay, so... I support Israel. I also don't want to see Palestinians die either, but the fact very simply is this. She's so concerned about that, but where was her concern when the same things were happening that Russia was doing to Ukrainians? She didn't have that such concern. And the fact is that how can you claim, on the one hand, to support Israel and claim that you want to be friends with the Jewish people when you have people in your own caucus that are no neo-Nazis. doesn't work that way. But, you know, Elise, I think she's a Harvard grad. And, you know, Harvard's here. She thinks everybody's stupid but us. But her. We are here in this very chamber for such a time as this. Jim Jordan will be we the people speaker for such a time as this. Our friend and colleague Jim Jordan is a patriot. He is an America First warrior who wins the toughest of fights. Okay, America First warrior, yeah. Neo-Nazi, keep going. Going after corruption and delivering accountability at the highest levels of government on behalf of we, the people. Okay, Jim Jordan was one of the insurrectionists. He's defended Trump at every every turn. Um, and he was one of the reps that was leading what could be interpreted as reconnaissance um, tours uh, of parts of the Capitol that tourists aren't usually allowed in. They were taking pictures of stairwells. Okay, how is this patriotic? You know, Jim Jordan was lead, helping to lead the charge to institute a Trump dictatorship. But, you know, Elise keeps going. Jim is the voice of the American people who have felt voiceless for far too long. <laughs> Whether as judiciary chair, conservative leader, or representative for his constituents in West Central Ohio, whether on the wrestling mat or in the committee room, <laughs> Jim Jordan is strategic, scrappy, tough, and principled. <laughs> he is a mentor, 
a worker, and above all, he is a fighter. And the American people know, we know, that Jim Jordan is a winner on behalf of the American people. Almost 10 years ago. Okay, I'm stopping her here. You heard how the Democrats, they're the wrestling thing, okay? <clears throat> There's so many lines in her speech, you can't even keep track of it all. And she does it with a straight face. All right, make no mistake about it. So for that reason, and so many others, Elise Stefanik wins our Jackass of the Week Award. Spray on, Elise. Spray on, you dumb bitch. I know I'm not supposed to say that, but it's it. Okay, it's it. Sorry, folks. It's... Okay, so we have just one more thing here. We have 41 minutes left, and that is another little bit of humor here. This is the musical stylings of Randy Rainbow. Now, this one has to do with the earlier election of Kevin McCarthy to House Speaker. You know, he was kicked out. And, but the lunacy of the GOP still holds true. So this is Randy Rainbow, Speaker of the House um, video, and it was, you know, so many months ago. But it still holds true. Give me a second here. Not since Gwyneth Paltrow's 2002 Academy Awards Dress has a decision-making process so grueling produced a result as god-awful as my next guest, barely elected Speaker of the House, Kevin McHead. Kevin, how's it going? Well, Holmes, the first week has been very productive. First, we've got a very good rules package that empowers oh, all of the shit. You've been handing out important committee assignments to election deniers, QAnon conspiracy theorists, pathological liars and third-rate drag queens. Tell us, how else do you plan to drag this country down to the fiery pits of hell? We should start every day. How can we be more efficient? How can we deliver a more effective to the American public? And how can we do it in a more secure way that we don't spend as much? Please wrap it up. Why would we sit back and be so arrogant to say, well, there's no waste in government? Speaking of no waste, Donald Trump continues to influence much of your party. What is your response to those who say you're nothing more than a boot-licking, hypocritical, orange-nosed little puppet? Well, first, let's just take a pause. Let's sit down together. Let's look at the places that we can change our behavior. Welcome this year to Church of Town and watch the wackest shit show in town. What an ordeal from GOP, more like the real housewives of DC. Let's just take a pause. I don't believe that's the case because he's out of the house, cunning little chap, covered in conservative full of crap, thirsty as a fish, quick to compromise, only took the motherfucker fifty tries. I wanna see all this white
something. We are going to be talking more about uh, challenges to our Bill of Rights because it is happening and it shouldn't be. The fact remains that we have a Republican Party that is, again, the GOP of Trump. The reason why the alleged moderates back down is because they're afraid of Trump's lynch mob. Let's get real. That's all it's about. Um, EJR, the Environmental Justice Report, will also be back. We're just kind of alternating how we do this. Um, you know, I'm just going to wrap this up with just saying that I pray, and I don't know if it's helpful or not, but I pray for not only what's happening in Israel and Palestine, but also what's happening in Ukraine. The world is going nuts. They just are. I wish I had the answers. I don't. I'm, I will readily admit when I don't know something. But I'll reference it. I'll at least try to figure it out. Um, again, I hope you learned something today. And stay, keep tuned in. If you like the show, again, indicate like on the website. And share this with everybody. Seriously, that's how we get the message out. If you're more interested in my commentary and my articles, I am a staff writer at Nation of Change. I'm also a listed contributor at Eurasia Review, and I still publish periodically at Op-Ed News. Um, With that, I say good night, and God bless us, because we're going to need it.